0: I got a brand new sweetie, better than the no one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 198 of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got a very old famous date for you. Along with three additional history stories from the same time period, And another fun advertisement from the same time period, too. Notice that today I said the stories are from the same time period, rather than from the same day. That was on purpose. Because today's famous date is so old, it was hard to find interesting additional history stories in the limited number of papers available to look through. And this event wasn't a one-day event. It lasted for somewhere between a week and a half to two weeks. That widened the search parameters for me for sure, but it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about really, really old news, we have to remember that it sometimes took multiple weeks and sometimes multiple months after an event ended for it to make it into the newspapers, especially the small town papers. Anyway, I'm listing today's date as March 2nd, 1836 even though this event began on February 23, 1836, and it ended on March 6th. I'm taking a headline from the Pittsburgh Gazette from March 3rd, even though I think the Gazette copied it straight from the Baltimore Chronicle. Do you see how hard this is? The headline simply says, Texas. Let me read you the first few lines of the article. It says, The struggle in Texas will soon become an object of deep interest. The latest accounts represent a part of the forces of Santa Ana as having approached within a short distance of San Antonio, and, of course, the two armies will not be long in coming to an engagement. Friends, today's famous date, March 2, 1836, was the day Texas declared its independence from Mexico, and the subject of this episode is the infamous Battle of the Alamo. Even though the article said the two armies would soon meet, the truth was that by the time the article was published, the Alamo had already been under siege for more than a week. And in a few days, on March 6th, those fighting there would find themselves reaching the end of their lives. Let me back up a little just in case it's been a while since you've been in history class or visited San Antonio, and you don't remember the details of what happened there. I'm going to give you the quick elementary school version. The Alamo was built in the 1740s as a home for Spanish missionaries, and it was near present-day San Antonio. But eventually the Alamo was turned into a fort for Spanish soldiers. The Alamo sat on about 3 acres of land, and its walls were between 9 and 12 feet high, and they were made of adobe. Inside the walls were things like a chapel, barracks for the soldiers, a hospital area, a horse corral, and a large courtyard. There were cannons on top of the walls and some of the buildings. At the time, Texas was part of Mexico, and Mexico belonged to Spain. That all changed in 1821, 15 years before the infamous Battle of the Alamo. That's when Mexico gained its independence from Spain. They established a new government, and it wasn't too different from that of its neighbor to the north the good old United States of America. After they gained independence from Spain, American settlers started moving into the Texas area and establishing their homes in San Antonio. They even became Mexican citizens. Fast forward to 1832, and a Mexican general took control of the government. He had a really, really long name, which is why most people just called him Santa Ana. He gained control and lost control of the government many times before his death. But when he first came to power, most Texans were in agreement that they did not like the guy. At all. They didn't want him to be their leader, and they figured it was time to break off from Mexico. They officially declared their independence on March 2, 1836. As you can imagine, Santa Ana wasn't too happy about that, so he gathered together an army of about 1,800 men, and started marching toward the Alamo, where 200 Texans were gathered. Some people, like Sam Houston, who would eventually become the first president of Texas, believed that they should gather the cannons up and abandon the fort. Others thought they should stick it out and fight for what they believed in, even though they were outnumbered. Those wanting to stay won out. The Texans inside the Alamo were led by Lieutenant Colonel William Travis, and frontiersman James Bowie. And, of course, the most famous person there during the battle was the King of the Wild Frontier himself, ex-congressman and folk hero Davy Crockett. I know I grew up watching shows about Davy Crockett, and I can still sing most of the song about him. My son used to sing it when he was three or four, and it was really cute. Anyway, Santa Ana and his army arrived at the Alamo on February 23rd and surrounded the fort. Lt. Col. Travis sent out a letter pleading for help, addressing it to the people of Texas and all Americans of the world. He told them they were under attack by a thousand or more members of the Mexican army, and the Mexicans were getting reinforcements every day. He ended the letter by saying, If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country, victory or death. Then, on the morning of March 6th, the Mexicans attacked. At first, the people in the fort did a good job, and they were able to fight off the invading Mexican army, but there were just too many of them, and when they started climbing up and over the walls to get into the fort, there wasn't much the small force inside could do. In only 90 minutes, the Mexican army had killed every single soldier inside the Alamo. And yes, that included Davy Crockett. There were only a few survivors, and they were all women and children and enslaved workers. It was a horrible, horrible loss, but it kind of united the rest of Texas together. And a few months later, Sam Houston led them into battle against Santa Ana under the battle cry, Remember the Alamo. And that time, The Texans were victorious. Okay, I think that's enough of a history lesson for now. So, I'm going to open some more newspapers and tell you what else was going on around the world the same time the Alamo was surrounded by the Mexican army. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee Greenest state in the land of the free Raised in the woods, so he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm actually going to tell you two versions of the same story. Just to show you how much details varied in newspapers nearly 200 years ago. I'm taking the first version of the story from the March 2nd, 1836 edition of The Morning Chronicle out of London, England. And I'm taking the second version of the story from the February 29th, 1836 edition of The Morning Post out of London, England. Notice that the date meant it was a leap year in 1836. Okay, the first headline says, Murder of a Daughter by Her Father. Yeah, it's a pretty serious story. Apparently, there was a man by the name of Philip Manuel living in a town known as Gwenap. He and his wife had been separated for quite a while, and some people said they'd been separated for as long as eight or nine years. Why were they separated? Because Philip had a horrible temper, and when his wife and kids just couldn't take it anymore, they moved out. Well, according to people who knew the family, the wife would often send her kids over to their father's house just to annoy him. They didn't go over there to visit, but more to harass. On the day in question, two of his daughters—and I have no idea how many kids Philip actually had—two of his daughters showed up at his house while he was mending a hedge and started throwing rocks at him. Then they started yelling at him and calling him names and taunting him by saying things like, Father, your pony isn't as pretty as our pony. To which Philip replied, That They didn't have a pony, and if they did, they must have stolen it. Philip didn't like the way the girls were acting, so he grabbed his gun and fired off a couple of warning shots. But he didn't actually hit either of the girls. At some point, someone heard him say that he was about to lose his soul because he was going to shoot one of his daughters. Supposedly, the girls had arrived sometime in the morning, and they were still there in the afternoon, still harassing him. Finally, Philip had had enough, and he fired, aiming at his daughter's. His 14-year-old daughter, Caroline, was shot in the neck. She died a few hours later. That same newspaper tells a slightly different view of events from the 17-year-old sister, a girl named Christian, who was also present. Christian said that she and Caroline were in the commons near their father's home, reading a book, when he approached them. They started fighting and yelling, and their father said some pretty bad words. Christian claimed that one of the first shots he fired actually went through Caroline's hand. The girls tried to hide at a neighbor's home, but then Philip threatened the neighbor's wife for allowing the girls to come into their home. And when the girls came back outside again, he began to chase them around, eventually shooting Caroline in the throat. Christian ran to her sister's side, but her father threatened to shoot Christian, too, If she didn't pick up her dying sister and carry her away another man arrived to help and he lifted caroline up while accusing philip of shooting his daughter what did philip do he denied it and went back inside his home that's the first version the second version of the story the one from february 29th said that the girls had specifically gone to their father's home to ask for help they needed food and money And they hoped that he would give them something. Philip refused them, so they began to beg. That just made Philip angry, and he started to threaten the girls. Still, they stayed. Then he got a gun and fired at them. Except he missed. Whether on purpose or an accident, it wasn't sure. But according to the article, the girls were so desperate for food and money, that despite the fact that one of their parents was shooting at them, they still stayed and pleaded some more for help. Then he told his other daughter, Christian, to stand away from Caroline. He didn't want to accidentally kill her, because apparently the farm was leased under Christian's name, and if she died, it was going to be a big problem for him. Then he deliberately aimed at Caroline and fired the gun. She fell at his feet, mortally wounded. The injured girl was carried away from her father's house, and two surgeons were sent for. But despite their best efforts, they knew there was nothing they could do for her, and Caroline spent an entire night in agony and then died the next morning. Most of the information in the two versions is the same. But in one version, the way it was written, I got the sense that the girls were made out to be annoying instigators, and it made it seem as if they almost deserved what had happened to them. The other made Philip out to be a monster, and actually called him that in the article, and it made it seem like the girls were starving and their father refused to help them. I'm guessing there's maybe a little bit of truth to both stories, but probably a lot more in the second story. Anyway, a jury inquest was held, and they decided that Philip Manuel's actions indicated the death of the girl was willful murder. But they thought it might be a good idea for someone to check him out, because the fact that he shot his daughter was a sign that he might be mad or insane. After all, Philip's father and several other family members had all gone mad before they died. The newspapers covered Philip Manuel's trial in great detail when it happened just a month later, on March 31st of 1836. But I'm only going to share some of the details, because most of it was repeated stuff from multiple witnesses. One thing that came out at the trial was that some of the neighborhood kids used to taunt Philip and chase him around because they knew he was a bit crazy and they thought it was funny. In fact, Philip had been that way his whole life, and so had his parents and siblings. He was bullied a lot. One person testified that even when they were kids together, he was afraid to walk by Philip's home because it was said that a madman lived there. Other witnesses reported that when he claimed he didn't shoot Caroline, it seemed like he was being serious, that he honestly didn't realize what he had done. Well, after all of the evidence and testimony had been gone through, the judge turned the case over to a jury. They took a vote, and they chose to acquit Philip of the death of his daughter, Caroline Manuel, on the grounds of him being insane. But it was decided that he would, quote, be confined during his majesty's pleasure. Meaning he was still going to be locked up, whether in prison or in an asylum of some sort. But it was for an indefinite amount of time. I have no idea if Philip Manuel was ever released. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm going to go back to the Pittsburgh Gazette, except this time I'm taking an article from the March 4, 1836 edition. The headline says, The Bill to Suppress Secret Societies. I read through a lot of that newspaper's editions in the days surrounding the events at the Alamo, and some things stood out in all of the papers, and other papers too. It was the talk of anti-Masonry. Everybody's heard of the Freemasons, of course. They're a somewhat secret organization that's been around for hundreds of years. Nobody knows for sure when they started exactly, but it was most likely sometime in the 1600s. Many, many men belonged to the organization in multiple countries, especially in the 1800s. And many of the people who belonged to the Freemasons were elite individuals in positions of authority. After a while, this really started to bother people, and in the 1820s and 1830s, a new movement started to form and take hold. It was known as the Anti-Masons. The Anti-Masons became such a big deal that they were considered to be a third political party, right alongside the Republicans and Democrats. It was the first time a third party had any clout in the United States. The article in 1836 made it clear that at least the Pittsburgh Gazette reporter was anti-Mason. People were complaining that nobody could get a fair trial if the judge was a Freemason, or if the jurors were. People believed they had secret packs to throw the outcomes of trials, and it wasn't fair for a non-Mason to be tried by a Mason. So. What exactly triggered the change and the dislike for Freemasons? Well, a lot of it could be traced back to a man named William Morgan. William Morgan was born in Virginia in 1774. right as the nation was taking shape. When he grew up, he joined the military, and he fought during the War of 1812. He earned the rank of captain while he was there. Then, when William was in his mid-40s, He married a 19-year-old girl, and he had a couple of children with her. The family decided to move to Canada, where William opened a brewery. At first, things were going okay. But then the brewery caught fire, and all of their hard work went up in flames. There was nothing they could do. The Morgan family was broke. So, William packed everyone up once again and moved the family to Rochester, New York. He started working as a bricklayer and a stonecutter, and I think those were things he had done in his youth, too. Some people say that he was a heavy drinker, and that he really liked to gamble. Habits that definitely hindered his success. Well, the family didn't stick around in Rochester for too long, and they soon moved to Batavia, New York which is about halfway between Rochester and Buffalo. When William got to Batavia, he tried to establish a Masonic lodge there, and to participate with the other chapters, but nobody seemed to want him around. They didn't like his character. William had been a member of the Leroy Western Star Chapter number 33 of the Masons while he was living in Rochester, and while he was a part of that chapter, He received what was known as the Royal Arch degree. They let him do it because he swore, under oath, that he had already received the six degrees before the Royal Arch and he'd become a Master Mason while living in Canada. The Batavia Masons didn't believe him, though, and they wouldn't let him join, especially because he didn't have any proof of his past membership. And in fact, some people even questioned his military service. Because even though multiple men named William Morgan can be found on militia rolls, none of them were captains. Does that mean he lied about his military service? Not necessarily. Maybe the records were just lost. Whatever the case, William Morgan was not at all happy that he was being kept out of the Masonic Lodge in Batavia. So he decided he was going to get revenge on the entire organization. He announced quite publicly, mind you, that he was going to release a tell-all book that he had written titled Illustrations of Masonry. The book would reveal all of the secret ceremonies and rituals that the Masons had. As you can imagine, this made the Masons extremely angry. If it was true that William was actually a member, that meant he had at some point put his hand on the Bible and sworn that he would never reveal any of the secrets of the Masons, including everything he promised to write in that book. Some members of the Batavia Lodge decided to retaliate, and they took out ads in the local newspaper denouncing William and telling people that he was an oath-breaker. Their actions just made William even more eager to publish his book. A publisher named David Miller recognized that there was potential to make a lot of money with a tell all book about the Masons, so he offered to publish William's book, and he even gave him a big advance. The local Masons decided it was time to step up their game, and they had William arrested, claiming that he had never repaid a loan. They also claimed that he'd stolen a shirt and tie, even though I don't think they had proof of their claims. William was potentially going to go to debtor's prison. If he was locked up, he couldn't publish the book. As soon as David Miller found out what had happened, he hurried down to the jail and paid off the debt William supposedly owed and then stuck around to make sure William was released. At some point during all of this, someone tried to set fire to David Miller's printing office. They really, really did not want the book released. Well, only a short time passed with William out of jail before he was arrested yet again. That time he was charged with not paying his tavern bill. The amount he supposedly owed was just two dollars. At some point, William was in the jail. The jailer stepped away for a bit, and a few men came while the jailer was gone and convinced the jailer's wife to let William go. They took William and all climbed into a waiting carriage, and then drove off. And that was the last time anyone saw William Morgan. He completely disappeared without a trace. But most people over the last 200 years believe the theory that he was taken by a group of Freemasons and killed. They believe he was taken in a boat to the Niagara River and then dumped overboard. And, in fact, that carriage he was last seen in ended up in the Niagara Falls area two days after he was last seen at the jail. Specifically, it was at Fort Niagara. The year after William was supposedly murdered, a body washed up on the shore of Lake Ontario. Since the rumors about William Morgan had been going around and around and around, it was believed the body was his. but. Since it was so decomposed, nobody could know for sure. William's wife took the body, believing it to be her husband, and had it buried in a cemetery and marked with a headstone bearing William's name. Except, there was still some question about it, especially when a woman in Canada came forward and said, Hey, my husband disappeared too, and that is definitely his clothing on that body. A group of Masons eventually did come forward and they said they knew where William really was. He hadn't been murdered at all, but they had given him $500 to leave the country. And there were occasional sightings of him, but none of them could be proved true. Eventually, a few of the local Masons were convicted for kidnapping William, but they only served short sentences. Others were acquitted. And then, a man confessed on his deathbed 20 years after the disappearance that he had been a part of a group that murdered William Morgan. So, after William disappeared, what did David Miller do? As soon as it was clear that William wasn't coming back, he published the book, Illustrations of Masonry, and it was a huge bestseller. Probably even more so than it would have been if William hadn't have disappeared. And the anti Mason movement began to take off again, and it included some notable figures, including a couple of US presidents. William Morgan has never officially been found, although in the early 1880s, a body was found buried somewhere in New York with some items that could have possibly been William's, including a ring with the initials W m it quite possibly could have been him except it was pretty strange timing that his body was found after 50 years right when a group was trying to raise money and support for a memorial in william's honor it all seemed a bit suspicious if you want to read it you can still find copies of illustrations of masonry today (laughs) For my third and final additional history story of the day, I'm going to do something a little different. Like I've said, the older the newspapers are, the fewer articles there are. From what I've seen, there was a pattern to the newspapers too. Most of them were four pages long. The first page was usually all advertisements. Big front page headlines were still decades away. Then the second page was news clips all lumped together including a lot of news from places like England. They'd usually give a rundown of things that had been happening in Congress, minute by minute, every detail. Then the third page was more ads. The fourth page varied. Sometimes it was more news, and sometimes, okay, a lot of the time, it was just filler stuff. They'd share old news from many years earlier. They'd share poems. They'd share random facts that had nothing to do with anything. And sometimes they'd share stories that you weren't sure if they were true or not. I see a lot of those stories. So I decided to share one of them with you. It's from the Rhode Island Republican out of Newport, Rhode Island, from February 24th, 1836. The headline says, The Monkey and Crows. Here's the story. In the jungles in the neighborhood of Tellicherry, There was a large species of monkey, frequently tamed by the natives, and at a village a short distance from this celebrated seaport, we had an evidence of the remarkable sagacity of the animal. A few yards from the house of the person to whom it belonged, a thick pole, at least thirty feet high, had been fixed to the earth, round which was an iron ring, and to this was attached a strong chain of considerable length, fastened. To the collar around the monkey's neck. The chain being loose, it easily slid up the pole when he ascended. He was in the habit of taking his station on the top of the bamboo, where he seemed perched as if to enjoy the prospect around him. This was really striking. The crows, which in India are very abundant and singularly audacious, taking advantage of his elevated position had been in the daily habit of robbing him of his food, which was placed every morning and evening at the foot of his pole. To this, he had vainly attempted to express his dislike by chattering, and other indications of his displeasure equally ineffectual. Nothing he could do was of any avail to scare away these unwelcome intruders upon his repast. He tried various modes to banish them, but they continued the periodical depredations. Finding that he was perfectly unheeded, he adopted a plan of retribution as effectual as it was ingenious. One morning, when his tormentors had been particularly troublesome, he appeared as if seriously indisposed. He closed his eyes, drooped his head, and exhibited various symptoms of severe suffering. No sooner were his ordinary rations put at the root of the bamboos than the crows, watching their opportunity, descended in great numbers, and according to their usual practice, began to demolish his provisions. The monkey began to slide down the pole by slow degrees, as if the effort was painful for him, and as if so overcome by indisposition that his remaining strength was scarcely equal to such exertion. When he reached the ground, he rolled about some time, seeming in great agony, until he found himself close to the vessel employed to contain his food, which the crows by this time well nigh devoured. There was, however, some remaining, which a solitary bird, emboldened by the apparent indisposition of the monkey, advanced to seize. The wily creature was at this time lying in a state of apparent insensibility at the foot of the pole, and close by the pan. The moment the crow stretched out its head, and ere it could secure a mouthful of the interdicted food, the watchful avenger seized the depredator by the neck with the rapidity of thought, and secured it from doing further mischief. He now began to chatter and grin with every expression of gratified triumph. While the crows flew around, cawing in boisterous chime, as if deprecating the chastisement about to be inflicted on their captive companion. The monkey continued for a while to chatter and grin in triumphant mockery of their distress. He then deliberately placed the crow between his knees and began to pluck it with humorous gravity. When he had completely stripped it, except the large feathers in the pinions and tail, He flung it into the air as high as his strength would permit, and after flapping its wings for a few seconds, it fell to the ground with a stunning shock. The other crows, which had been fortunate enough to escape a similar castigation, now surrounded it and pecked it to death. The expression of joy on the animal's countenance was altogether indescribable and he had no sooner seen this ample retribution dealt to the purloiner of his repast than he ascended the bamboo to enjoy a quiet repose. The next time his food was brought, not a single crow approached it, and I dare say that thenceforth he was never molested by these ferocious intruders. So, what do you think? Was this a true story? Did the monkey outsmart the crows, which I know are extremely intelligent animals? The place where it took place was Telicherry, India, which is a town on the southwestern coast of the country. It was a hub for the spice market, and the British established a trading post there in the 1600s. It became somewhat of a melting pot of cultures, at least at that time. I am leaning towards this story being true at some point and it was probably just passed around from person to person, and then someone decided to write it out and send it to the newspaper. For my advertisement of the day, I'm taking an ad from the February 27, 1836 edition of the Boston Post. This ad was titled, Zoological Exposition and the zoo in Boston, not the same zoo that's there now, was announcing that they'd recently added something to their zoo experience. Paintings. Yep, it wasn't a new animal, but you could go to the zoo and see paintings of the city of Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Washington, Calais, Marseille, St. Thomas, and Dundee. You could also see paintings of some of the battle scenes with Napoleon Bonaparte as well as some religious paintings, including one of The Last Supper and one of Christ delivering the keys of paradise to St. Peter. The ad didn't say who any of the artists were, so I don't know if they were famous paintings or just artwork from local amateurs. But along with seeing the paintings, you could visit all of the animals for the same admission price. The zookeeper would enter the cages of the ferocious animals at 4 p.m. and 8 p.m., if you wanted to be there for that, and the giant elephant, wearing its fancy saddle from India, would perform tricks in a circus ring at 8.30 p.m. So, how much did it cost to visit the zoo? Just 25 cents a person, and children under the age of 10 were half price. Not a bad deal. Friends, thanks for joining me today for a look back at what was being written about in newspapers around the country and world, at the same time the Battle of the Alamo was being fought in Texas. I learned a lot while making this episode, and I hope you did too. Join me again this Thursday for a mini-episode. It's been a while since I've done a Random Clippings episode, and my file of Random Clippings is bursting with stories. There are some good ones in there. Then I'll be back on Monday with a very special full-size episode. Why is it special? It will be the 200th episode of this podcast. I can hardly believe it. The episode will, of course, have something to do with the number 200, but you'll have to tune in to find out what it is. Talk to you later.